Okay, welcome to Old Testament Survey. Let me open in a word of prayer. Lord, we are thankful for your word, especially this part of the Bible we call the Old Testament. It helps us in so many ways. Help us this morning to understand those ways. Help us to know that it is vital, really, for our sanctification. We learn so much from the Old Testament. Teach us to honor your word. Teach us to read your word. Move our hearts, Lord, to love your word and to obey it. We pray that you would do this for us. Amen. Well, I think you know probably what the Old Testament is, but the survey part you might not be familiar with. This is a a typical class name for something in a Bible college or a seminary where you go quickly through books of the Bible. So they have Old Testament survey. It's usually done in a couple of parts and a New Testament survey class. And the goal there is just to study each book briefly, pull out the themes, who wrote it, why was it written, where was it written from, who was it written to, and uh, maybe some key verses, maybe an outline, really just to help you digest quickly what the book is about. Hopefully you're reading your Bible throughout the year. Uh, If you are able, I'm not going to require it, but if you're able, first read Ephesians, like I said last week. That should only take you 30 minutes or so a day, or even once a week. If you're able, though, read the Old Testament as we're going through this class. We'll start with Genesis next week, today's introduction. But if you're able to keep up, that's going to greatly benefit what we're doing in the survey. When I was in seminary, we had to read through the Old Testament. When I took this class, we had to read through the Old Testament three times. Once at the beginning of the semester, once throughout the semester, and then one more time at the end. So if you could just do it once, I think that would be of great benefit. Um, If you're not able to keep that up, don't feel guilty, but you get out of what you put into it. Old Testament survey. So before we jump into Genesis, which I would love to do, I was tempted to just jump right in and get going. But we need to set the groundwork. And since there's so much bad teaching out there on the Old Testament and, and just bad beliefs, bad theology, we need to address some of that. And really just ask the question, why should we study the Old Testament? It's the Old Testament, it's the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant as Christians. In fact, it's very popular in the many church movements today to downplay the Old Testament. It's popular for some preachers even to say, we don't need the Old Testament. We can cut it out of our Bible, we can unhitch from it. Other people... Don't hear that from their preacher or pastor, but just practically in everyday life, they ignore it. It's never read. It's never studied. The church that they go to might not even open a book of the Old Testament to ever study or preach on. So why is it important? Why study the Old Testament? Because we're a New Testament church. Some people will say the church was in the Old Testament. The New Covenant church was not in the Old Testament. It's in the New. It's described there. So why should we study that? What are the reasons? We're going to work our way through these five points first this morning. I'll just briefly summarize them for you now. It was written to lead us to Christ. It was written to encourage us in faith. It was written to give us examples to follow. It was written for our spiritual benefit. And five, very similar to number one, a little bit of difference I'll get into, it is able to save souls because it reveals Christ and the gospel. You could even say sanctify on number five. Save and sanctify. So number one, it was written to lead us to Christ. Could people be saved with the Old Testament alone? 
If that's all they had, could they be saved? Some people would say no. I've had uh, people in the past ask me if the Israelites were even saved, any of them, because they didn't have the New Testament, they didn't have the gospel revealed to them like we do in the New Testament. Well, Jesus used the Old Testament many times when he taught, when he preached. That was his Bible. Jesus grew up learning from the Old Testament, going to synagogue, memorizing it like all Jewish young men and women would do in that, in that day and even today. And he used it to prove many things when he taught. He proved his identity, who he was, that he was fully God, truly God. He, he proved that he was the Son of Man, referenced in Daniel. Chapter 7, chapter 9, he, he cited these passages. When he talked about the end times even, and he would return, the Son of Man would come back, he cited from the Old Testament, because that was it. That was all that they had. He used it to respond to his critics, and he used it to illustrate his points. Just like Jonah, he said, was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He would be in the belly of the earth. He points to illustrations. I I love to illustrate from the Old Testament. Um, John MacArthur really taught me this because he said, first when he thinks of an illustration for a sermon, he goes to the Old Testament. Is, Is there an illustration in the Old Testament that I can use? Instead of, you know, what my kids ate for lunch yesterday and, you know, some funny thing that happened at home. I try not to use too many of that because it's not so much about what's happening in my silly life, but what's God showing us when he illustrates points in the Old Testament. And Jesus did that. He affirmed it was the basis for his ministry and the apostolic ministry. So we'll look in a, a little bit later at Luke 24. You might recall when I preached on it, Jesus used that saying that it pointed to him. He affirmed it. He told them that it was all revealed there, which is hard for us if we're not familiar with the Old Testament. Where were those things revealed? So that's the first reason. It was written to lead us to Christ. Now the preaching of the apostles was founded on Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus came, he taught, he quoted from his Bible, which was the Old Testament. But, the apostles did the same thing. They didn't, they didn't suddenly say, you know, I wrote this letter today to Ephesus. I'm just going to quote from that as I preached. You read the book of Acts. Many of those letters weren't written yet, but you read the book of Acts. What's Peter doing when he preaches? He's quoting from the Old Testament. What's Paul doing often when he preaches and teaches? He's quoting from the Old Testament. What's he doing in Ephesus when he says, I taught you the whole counsel of God? Well, he only has the Old Testament when he's there. So that's what he's teaching from. So Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is built on the text that Jesus had already used to say who he was, to prove who he was. Stephen's defense. You remember Stephen, one of the early deacon-like men in the Jerusalem church? He was stoned to death for his witness, for his preaching about Christ, Christ as the Messiah. They put him to death. What did he do? He quoted. He actually went all the way through from Genesis onward and basically proved that the Israelites were a stubborn people and they always, always rebel against God. And of course, they proved it, didn't they? They stoned him that moment. They were so angry. So Jesus used it and the apostles used it as well. Uh, Paul practiced this when he went to Acts 17. and says, Now then, they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, what did he reason from? The scriptures. So he's going to see pagans in Athens to preach the gospel. But first, where does he stop? The synagogue, to see the Jews. And he reasons from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Right there from the Old Testament. Where is he going? We don't know. Maybe Isaiah 53. I mean, we can guess. Psalm 22 various passages, but he's just showing them right out of the scriptures. And even when he goes up to the Acropolis and starts preaching to the pagans, he uses general teachings from Genesis. This is the creator God. You worship an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the God I know, the God who created all things, the God who's calling everyone to repent. He's not quoting necessarily a verse, but where's he getting that theology from? repentance, creation. Where does that come from? It's not made up in Paul's head. He's getting it from the Old Testament. So maybe he's not quoting so much when he talks to pagans, but he's summarizing what the Old Testament teaches. He's not preaching his own message, in other words. It's a message given to him by Christ that is proven in the Old Testament. The New Testament, that's NT here, New Testament abounds with citations from the Old. They're used everywhere. Everything from examples and illustrations to proofs, explanations, justifications. All over the New Testament we see the old quoted. From Matthew to Revelation. I've heard different numbers on how many times the new quotes the old. If you count allusions and everything, do you remember, Brenton, what that was when we studied it? Yeah, I think it was one out of ten verses in the new is either a quote or an allusion to the old. One out of every ten. And there's there's like 300, I think, just in Revelation alone. The book of Revelation. So the old is, it's key. It's a foundation. So it was written to lead us to Christ. to, To point to Christ. To point to Christ. It's inspired by God. It is His Word. It is God's work. And it witnesses to this coming Messiah, who he would be, what he would do. Have you ever considered that the Old Testament in many places, written from from anywhere from 400 to 1400 years before Jesus came, is pointing towards him. It's describing what he'll do. It's saying who he is. Even in in the early books of the Bible, Genesis 3 says that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, pointing to the Messiah. And we see that from Genesis 3 all the way through, in our Bibles, all the way through Malachi. He's there everywhere. Not in every single verse, every word. Right? You're not turning over the rocks looking for Jesus in every verse, but He's there throughout. He's there throughout. You don't never want to twist Scripture to try to find Jesus. If it's talking about David and Goliath, then that's David and Goliath. It's not a symbol for you know, you and the devil. It's not a symbol for Jesus and the devil. That's David and Goliath. And it's talking about how great God is, that he could choose David and strengthen David and be there in his power to defeat Goliath. So because the Old Testament was written all those years ago to point to Christ, it's marvelously useful as a basis from which I should preach from, which the church should teach from. The New Testament is 
a clear presentation of the gospel. Clear commands from Christ. The majority of what you're going to hear here from the pulpit on a Sunday morning is the New Testament being preached. But I would be unfaithful if I never touched the Old Testament. If we never did a Bible study on the Old Testament. If we never looked at it in any class setting or even from the pulpit. The Old Testament is a fabulous place to build a, a real foundation for biblical theology. Even for the church. Why is the church needed today? Who, who is the church? What is the church? I had somebody contact me this week on Facebook. They're struggling in their church. The church isn't preaching the Bible. They're not teaching doctrine. And the guy was just saying, I'm t- so confused. I don't know what to believe. And so I, of course, welcomed him to come and visit and pointed him to Scripture. But from the beginning until the end of the Bible, what's the need we have for Christ? What's the need for Christ to build this church? What are the promises we have in Christ? What's the cross about? What's the ultimate consummation that everybody argues about what's going to happen when Christ comes back? What's all that about? What's happening at the end of our Bibles? Well, the old helps us with that. It's the foundation. It builds upon it. You can be saved not knowing the Old Testament. You can be saved by the Old Testament alone. But to really understand the new, you have to know the old. You have to know the old. So make sure you're reading it in your Bible reading plan. Secondly, it was written to encourage us in faith. The second reason we need to study. Why is it important to study the Old Testament? It encourages us. It encourages us in the faith. It helps us persevere. It helps us be admonished at times. It propels us forward. Paul says that the Old Testament was written to teach us how to live for Christ. So here's Romans 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Now here it is, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Who's he talking to in Romans? Christians in the New Testament church. In Rome, but all Christians today as well. Written for our instructions. Whatever was written in earlier times. He's talking about the Old Testament because that's where he quotes from. So that through perseverance, through endurance, through persevering in the faith and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Can you have hope reading the Old Testament? Anybody agree with me that you can have hope reading the Old Testament? You can have a lot of hope reading the Old Testament. In fact, it's often quoted in the New to give you hope. The Old is quoted in the New to give you hope, saying, look, same God who promised things then is still promising them now, and He won't break His promises. So what are some of those encouragements? It's a a brief example of some of them. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, just a list of men and women of the faith, all from the Old Testament. Starts off, by faith, men gained approval. Gained approval by God. Not, not that they earned their salvation, but they lived in a godly way and they were saved before that and they lived in a godly way after that. And he goes on to say, by faith we understand these things. And then he starts off, by faith, Abel, and then Enoch, and then right down the list. And there's some characters in that list that we think shouldn't be there. Japheth? What's Japheth doing there? What's Samson doing in that list? Interesting. There's some pagans in that list, you know. But this is the role of the faith in the Old Testament. It's encouraging. It's there to encourage us to have faith. 
to endure, to persevere. Consider the many encouragements and contemporary lessons of the study of Job. You ever read Job? How helpful is Job? How helpful is the Psalms? How helpful is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, even Song of Solomon when it comes to love in marriage? That's encouraging. Could, could, we, could we really sing and praise God without the Psalms? I'm sure we could if God intended it that way, but every, almost every week, you notice Joey opens the service with a psalm, portion of a psalm. Why? Because they're praises to God. They were written as songs to God. They're encouraging to us. They encourage us to bless God, to worship Him, to praise Him. The entire Old Testament is inspired, meaning that it's breathed out. It's breathed out by God. And it's a record of men and women of the faith. People who believed in God. What happened to the people who believed in God then? Well, if they sinned, they were disciplined. If they showed themselves not to be believers, then they were destroyed, judged. If the whole nation veered off into idolatry, they were judged. But if they persevered in the faith, they showed themselves to truly be born again, then they were saved by God's grace. That, that encourages us. If you have any questions, let me know as we go along. Oh, it was written to give us examples to follow. Number three, why should we study the Old Testament? So it, it encourages us, but even more specifically, it gives us examples to follow. Very specific examples. As we went through 1 Samuel in our Bible studies last year, so many examples, good and bad examples. Good example was often David. The bad example was, in Samuel, Saul. Saul, the bad example. Good started out as Samuel, then becomes David near the end of the book. But Saul was the bad example. We saw what happens in Saul's life when he sinned, and he disobeyed God, and he ignored God's direct commands. That's an example. It's not there just as a little entertaining story. It's there to teach us something. Paul makes that clear that in much of the New Testament, believers should learn from the old by way of example. So 1 Corinthians 10, let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 10, go there in your Bible, and he's going to tell us that it is an example. In fact, in my Bible, these aren't, these aren't inspired, but the heading for chapter 10, avoid Israel's mistakes. That's a warning. You know, he's telling you, avoid these mistakes, or, or the editors of the NASB here. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Who's he writing to? Always ask that question when you're reading the Bible. Who's he writing to? First, he's writing to the Corinthians. Are the Corinthians all Jewish that are in the church? No, there's a lot of Gentiles in that church. A lot of former pagans. They're not aware of the Old Testament that much. Some of them would have learned it since they got saved. But he calls them our fathers. Our fathers. Because in the faith, Abraham is our father. And so in many ways, we are closely connected with God's people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And he says, all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they, Moses was the representative, but they all got put into God, immersed, baptized as immersed, immersed into the teaching of Moses, which was given by God 
in the cloud. They went through the Red Sea. They were immersed in that sense. They went through the water. And all ate the spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. Christ was following them in the wilderness? Well, that's what it says in my Bible. That's what it says in your Bible. He was the rock. Now, they didn't know that that was Christ. They just thought it was God. But we know it's Christ the Son. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. They had everything given to them by God. He saved them out of Egypt, and they rebelled against him. They all died in the wilderness. Almost all of them died in the wilderness. The whole generation passed away. Verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us. It taught Israel something. It accomplished what God said he would do, which was judge them if they disobeyed. But it also taught us something, he says. They were examples. So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. So when you read the Old Testament and you see what's happening and you see God punishing them, you should never say to yourself, those idiots. You know, those Israelites, how did they not get it? It's like every time God tells them what to do, they don't obey. They're such fools. No, you should be saying, how am I just like them? How am I just that kind of foolish, sinful person that I continue to disobey? Thank you, Lord, that you haven't wiped me out like you did them. Now, there are some differences. We have the Spirit, they didn't, etc. But uh, we won't go into those right now. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. So here's the problem, that he's worried about them in Corinth. We should be worried about today. Don't chase after other gods or other um, things that take our attention away from God, idolatry. As some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. What does that mean? That's from Exodus. Y'all remember when that's used? They sat down to have a little party and they stood up to play, which is immoral things, sexual immorality. I actually saw online where somebody was making an argument that God is God wants us to have fun. He wants us to play. And they cited this verse. I said, you don't, you don't want to cite this verse. This is, this is immoral play. What happened there? They, they built the uh, golden calf. Moses was gone too long. They thought God had destroyed him. So they're going to create their own God to worship. They built the golden calf. They sit down to have a little feast. They got up to play because they were drunk. And they committed immorality. And Paul's saying, learn from that. Don't do that. Verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Why is he reminding us of this? Because he doesn't want Christians to fall into those same sins. If God is holy then and would wipe out 23,000 in one day, wouldn't he take believers out of this world too? Or false believers? Wouldn't he discipline them? Paul says in, uh, later in this book that some of you have not taken the Lord's Supper rightly and you've become sick and some of you have died. People are actually dying in God's will because they were being disobedient. And it happened in the Old Testament as well. And number 10, uh, verse 10, nor grumble. So it's not just idolatry, but also grumbling, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. So here it is again. It was an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we're we're the last major phase in God's plan. And we should look back and, and learn from these. These are examples to teach us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, 
but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The whole lesson there, don't do what they did. When you read those stories in the Old Testament, real stories, real historical accounts, don't do that. Be warned by it. Avoid that. And God will provide a way out. If, you, if you're trying to avoid sin, God will provide a way. He's not guaranteed you're never going to sin. He's saying there's always a way out of that temptation. So you don't have to follow it like most of them did. So it was written to give us examples to follow. Second Samuel 11. It's a picture of how to ruin your life. What happened in Second Samuel 11? Who knows their Old Testament? What's the great sin David committed? All of these chapters, but here's my chapter heading. Not, again, not inspired, but it helps us quickly find something. Bathsheba, David's great sin. What's the lesson there? Don't commit adultery and don't commit murder. What's going to happen? What happened to his life after that? What happened to his family? What happened to his children? What happened to his line uh, with Solomon? I mean, God made promises, and and David was a believer, but he sinned greatly. And that's an example to us. I heard a sermon in seminary once. They were warning us about the, the sins of immorality and adultery. And the guy just went through and traced every consequence from David's sin with Bathsheba. Everything bad that happened in his life, in his children's life, in later generations, in the nation's life. I don't remember how many there were, but it seems like there were 20 or 21 consequences to David's one sin that only took a few minutes to do. And he paid for it. His children paid for it. Not paid for it to earn their salvation back, but they had consequences in this life. God can can promise you eternal salvation in Christ, which he does, but there's still consequences in this life for our sins. Fourthly, why should we study the Old Testament? It was written for our spiritual benefit. Written for our spiritual benefit. What kind of spiritual benefit? Well, Paul explained in Romans 4, 23, 24, that what was written in Genesis was for our instruction. Not so much Abraham's. Contextually, Paul is writing to the church about the book of Genesis. So let's go to Romans 4. By the way, we're getting some of, uh, we have some MacArthur Study Bibles in the bookstore, but I want to get more that have little tabs, the thumb tabs that have each book of the Bible right there. You know, even MacArthur himself, the guy knows the Bible. You know what kind of Bible he has in the pulpit? One of those, it's got the little thumb print uh, tabs on there that tell you the books of the Bible. Why does he have that? So he can go quick, like he's preaching. He's got to go quick, otherwise you miss it, you got to go back. So I want to get uh, some more of those MacArthur Study Bibles in the bookstore as well. Okay, where were we? Romans 4, 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. So what's Paul talking about? Justification by faith. See, in verse 22, it was also credited to him as righteousness. So that's he's quoting there from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the account of Abraham in Genesis. And then verse 23 says, it was not just for him that that was written. But, verse 24, for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So the whole account of of Abraham is instructive, but he's saying it's specifically written also for Christians. Not just Abraham, not just Israel, but for Christians today to learn that 
Jesus gave the great commission in Matthew, telling his church to teach disciples to observe all that I commanded you, which necessarily included an abundance of references to the Old Testament. How many times did Jesus cite the Old Testament? How many times did the apostles cite the Old Testament? One out of ten, right? According to Brenton's research, one out of ten. Ten percent of the time. If we're going to know all that Jesus commanded, we better know what he's talking about when he quotes the Old Testament. You may have to go there and, and, and study it. Figure out what's the context that he's bringing forth. All that he commanded. That's part of the Great Commission. We tell every new member that when they come through the class. It's not just make disciples. That's the beginning. Then secondly, it's baptize them in the name of the Trinity. Thirdly, teach them to observe all that I commanded. First, you got to teach them what he commanded and then how to observe it. We can't just come to church and have a rock concert. We can't just come to church and, and just sort of have a good time. We're here as, as leaders. We have to teach. And, and you as believers need to be teaching in some capacity. Maybe not in the church, but your, your family, your house. Maybe you're proclaiming the gospel. That's a type of teaching. Evangelism is a type of teaching in a sense. He's talking to the whole church here. The church is to teach disciples to observe all that I commanded you. Maybe it's one-on-one counseling. Maybe it's you know just discipleship, small group, home group. But you have to know what the Bible says to teach it. You don't have to be an expert, but you need to be constantly learning, constantly studying. Paul defined the role of a pastor teacher in Ephesians as one given to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service. So what's the role of elders in the church? Pastors, elders... What's the role to equip, to, to give the body what they need, the tools they need from Scripture to build up the body? So equip them to work and serve one another to build up the body of Christ. The clear implication from Paul's own ministry in Ephesus is that it includes not shrinking from declaring you to you the whole counsel of God. He's visiting with the elders. He doesn't go into Ephesus. Remember, they come down to meet with him. And they visit with him and he says, remember when I was there for three years, I didn't shrink back. I declared the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Everything in the Bible. Which, what was his Bible? The Old Testament. He was there for three years, so maybe he preached the whole Old Testament. If he taught all day long, every day, for three years. I think he's just saying, there was no place in the Bible that I was scared to go to. We went all over. I taught from different passages. Maybe he taught verse by verse through the whole Old Testament. I don't know. But he could have also said this if he just taught generally through different portions as well. I think this is why expository preaching is so important in the church. That you ought to be a part of a church that goes verse by verse, for the most part, through books of the Bible. So you can say, this church is teaching the whole counsel of God, not skipping over things that are hard. You know, today's sermon, we're looking at um, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. It talks about election. There are many places where that would just be skipped. I'm not. I'm not saying... That, that we're a perfect church. I'm just saying there are places out there that would just skip a passage like that and never touch on it. And that's the counsel of God. He's put it there for a reason. Same for the Old Testament. Yes? No. Because even when you're, let's just say you're staying in the New Testament all the time, which is not, I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's good for leaders to do in a church. But let's just say that was the case. One out of ten verses is pointing back to the older, quoting it directly. So, you know, a guy who's really trying to exposit the word has to deal with those quotes. And to deal with those quotes, you've got to go back and study it in the old and, and give it the
the congregation a bit of what's going on there. And he mentioned, you know, this is a quote from Isaiah. Here's why he used it. Here's what's going on in Isaiah. So if that was not touched upon, that to me is not a faithful teacher or preacher because they just skipped over it. And sometimes people do that. It's unfortunate. But yeah, if a church always stayed in the New Testament, they never had anything in their church at all on the old. And even when quotes from the old came up, they weren't touched really, then I would probably counsel somebody to find a better place to to learn God's word if that was possible. Yeah, so the objection she's saying is that, you know, Old Testament's law, New Testament's grace. We're in the New Testament. Don't worry about the old. All the things we've already talked about could be used against that argument. But I, I, I probably... If I was in a church like that someday, I, I would most likely not argue too much and just leave. Because, especially if that's a leader that's been there a while, a preacher, you might you might try if somebody was there, a family member, a friend. But more than likely, they just don't understand. They haven't been trained. Uh, well, we could just go down the list of why that is. But there's a lot of confusion theologically there in what that person is saying. There's grace and law in the Old Testament. There's grace and law in the New Testament. The key is trying to figure out what it's doing there. Now, generally, Jesus calls the law the first five books of the Bible, but there's still gospel there in the first five books of the Bible. And when the New Testament talks about uh, we're not under law but under grace, they're saying that we don't have to try to obey the law and be perfect. Like the Jews thought in Paul's day and Jesus' day, we have to obey the law, that's how we're going to be saved. He says we're not under law, we're under grace. God's grace, God chooses, God's sovereign, God saves, God redeems. And that's a serious issue. There's a lot of people in ministry that shouldn't be in ministry because they're not equipped either mentally or they're not equipped with training or the tools. Maybe they need help from somebody. But there's just too many people watering down the Scripture that that need more help in learning Scripture and theology. Paul very clearly defines the value of all Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, he says. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is every book, every chapter, every verse. When he writes 2 Timothy, what is he talking about? All Scripture. Well, he's only written a few letters. Paul's only written a few letters by the time he writes 2 Timothy. He knows there's Scripture, but the majority of what he's saying there with all Scripture is the Old Testament. It's two-thirds of our Bible today. The majority of our Bible today, and the Bible's complete. There's not any more books going to be added. It's complete and it's two-thirds. So all Scripture is inspired. It's breathed out by God. And it's profitable, he says. It's useful. It's beneficial for us. It's advantageous for us. It's helpful for us. That's what profitable means. For what? Instruction. So it teaches us. We've already looked at some verses on that. It corrects or reproves us. Reproves us. Reproof is telling you to stop. That's the stop sign. Stop doing this. It reproves us. It corrects us. That's to turn around and go the other direction. Once you've been stopped, you're going to be corrected, shown how to turn around and go another way. And for training, just general training and righteousness. The Old Testament's good for that? Yeah. This means the Bible's all we need for sanctification. Assuming you're in Christ, assuming you have the Holy Spirit, the Bible is our tool, is our manual, is our book for living a godly life. We don't need other people to give us their opinions. We don't need man. We don't need psychology to tell us how to live a godly life and defeat sin. The Bible, old and new, is sufficient. And number five, we've already touched on this a bit, but it's 
capable of saving souls because it reveals Christ and the gospel. So yeah, it points to Christ, but that, that was number one. But more than that, it actually lays out the good news. It lays out the good news. That's what Jesus was getting at when he said in Luke 24 that he explained his life, death, and resurrection from the Old Testament. Now we're in 2 Timothy. Let's go to 3.15. I don't think they'll have that up yet. Yeah, 2 Timothy 3.15. Can a person be saved just from the Old Testament? Is that possible? Well, it happened with Timothy. 2 Timothy 3. We just looked at 16 and 17. That's sanctification. A Bible sufficient for sanctification. But it's also sufficient for salvation. In other words, the message of salvation is contained in the Bible. We don't need another message somewhere else. 2 Timothy 3.15. And that from childhood. So Paul's talking to Timothy. From childhood you have known the sacred writings. The Holy Scriptures. You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From the time he was a little boy, his grandma and his mom, Jews, taught him the scriptures. And from that young age, he knew the Bible. And the Bible, he says, that Old Testament Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient. It leads you to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It gives you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So is the gospel in the Old Testament? Well, if the gospel is the message of salvation, and that's the only way a person can be saved, and he's saying that people are saved from the Old Testament, the conclusion is the gospel must be in the Old Testament. And as we would expect, Paul's already told us that somewhere else. 1 Corinthians, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. I love this passage because it just simplifies what the gospel is. And Paul says, where we get it, the source of that message. Where does it come from? It comes from the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance. So this is, this is primary. It's the most important message that I first came and gave you. Something he says I also received. Where did he receive it? Well, in, in the case of him, he received it directly from Jesus Christ. What is that message? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What are the scriptures when he writes 1 Corinthians? You guys know the answer by now, right? All that he has, all that's out there according to the scriptures is the Old Testament. So he's saying Christ died for our sins. If you're a believer in Christ, that means he died for your sins. That's in the Old Testament because it's according to the scriptures. And verse 4, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on to talk about what happened after that, after he was raised. But those first few points, that he died for our sins, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, all in the scriptures, just exactly as the scriptures told in the Old Testament. If you want to know what some of those scriptures were, look up my sermon on this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. I think I preached it one Easter Resurrection Sunday. And uh, the hard one is the buried and the raised. I think both of those. Verse 4, but there are scriptures that touch on that. Not as many. But died for our sins. There's multiple in the Old Testament. Luke 24, let's go there. already mentioned it briefly before. 
one of my favorite sermons to preach out of Luke. A lot of people twist these passages. Twist it. How do they twist it? They say, you've got to make every verse in the Old Testament about Jesus. That's a twisting of it. That's not what he did. So look at what he did. 24, 27. Then, he be, then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them, the guys on the road to Emmaus, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Not in every scripture, but he's saying broadly in all the scriptures. From Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, he was pointing out places where it said he would come, where it said he would die, where it said he would be raised again. He's just preaching a sermon as they walk down the road. He didn't even have time to go through every verse because it's not that far from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But he touched on the major passages that pointed to him, that told of the gospel. Now he shows up when all the disciples are gathered back in Jerusalem in verse 44. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets... That's all the historical books and the prophets. And the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the whole Old Testament. The Psalms would just be the writings, everything else. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. All three sections of the Old Testament, Christ is there. And he showed them. He's like, what are you guys surprised about? Why are y'all thinking something bad has happened? Why are y'all so scared? This is exactly what I told you would happen. And I showed you in the Old Testament that it would happen. Then he opened their minds to understand. See, that was the problem. They didn't have the ability yet to understand. He opened their minds. See, they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. So he opened their minds and he said to them, Thus it is written, where is it written? In the Old Testament, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Even that third day, it's that specific in the Old Testament? Yeah, I think so. And I mentioned that in my sermon from 1 Corinthians. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's in the Old Testament, that the gospel would go out to all the nations, starting in Jerusalem and then spreading out from there. Maybe it's not as clear as the new. That's kind of the point. As Scripture goes forward, it gets more and more clear what's going to happen with salvation in the world. But it was there. And he goes on to send them out with that message. So it's capable of saving souls. R.C. Sproul, saved by reading a verse out of Ecclesiastes about the tree falling in the woods. It's like nothing to do with Christ or the gospel, but it convicted him of his sin. He turned to what he'd already heard of the gospel, and it led him to salvation. Okay, so that's reasons why we should study it. Let's look at what it is. What it is. You know, there's a lot of argument over what is the Old Testament, what order should it be in. Different people have different books of the Old Testament. The, the Catholics have extra books in the Old Testament, called the Apocrypha. Protestants don't have those because we don't think they're inspired by God. So this is what a Jewish Bible would look like in Jesus' day, and it's what it looks like today if you pick up a Jewish Bible designed for people in Israel, for example. What do you notice there? Well, the first five books are pretty much the same as we are used to, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. By the way, just those first five books make up a quarter of the Old Testament, 20% of the whole Bible, just in the first five books. 
If the Old Testament's the foundation, the first five books, the Pentateuch or the Torah, it's the foundation of foundations, the lowest foundation, the most important one to understand if you're studying the whole Bible. Then there's the first generation of Israel. That's the former prophets and the latter prophets. It's pretty similar. The former prophets, we, we call those historical books in our Bibles. But the Jews just considered them the former prophets. That was prophecy from God of what happened and what Israel should do. And then the latter prophets, we're, we're pretty familiar with calling them prophets, but they put those two groups together in their Bible. We have some of these things in between that right there. These second generation and forward of Israel and these have to do with more history. These have to do with, um, we would call Daniel a prophet, but they call it a writing. These are the writings. Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. The last book in their Bible is Chronicles because Chronicles gets the furthest down the line and extends further than the other books in its history. That's the Hebrew order. Here's our order today. Same first five books. History books there. We call them history books. So we've taken some of their last column and put them in the history. Wisdom and poetry. So what are, what are we doing in Protestantism? Really, this comes from the Septuagint. So the, the, the Greeks, the Jewish Greek speakers began to organize it differently. And we've, we've followed some of those patterns and done our own thing. What are we organizing by? Genre. Genre. You have the genre of law. That stays the same as the, the Hebrew. But history, historical books, wisdom and poetry together, prophecy together. And then, of course, we have our New Testament added on. The gospel and then revelation would be prophecy. I don't have epistles from the New Testament up here. Questions? If you want to learn Hebrew, you can get yourself a Hebrew Bible. Learn them in that order. When I was in seminary taking Old Testament survey, we, we, we didn't go through it in Hebrew. We went through it in English, but we followed this order. And my professor even argued that maybe, he said, maybe God had inspired it to be in this order. Not everybody has agreed with that, obviously. It's why we have them in a different order. I don't know that we can say God has inspired this specific order. But if you read it like this, it does sort of tell a chronological story. We could also divide it up by covenants. What covenants are mentioned in each Bible? If you were, or each section of the Old Testament. If you were in my theology class, early in the summer we looked at the covenants for a few weeks. The fathers, the first generation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even before Abraham, Noah, there's two covenants mentioned there in, in Genesis. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Then in that first generation of Israel, so after the fathers. They're going down to Egypt. Now they're coming out of Egypt. The Abrahamic covenant is mentioned again by Moses. The Mosaic covenant, that's the, the Ten Commandments and all the laws that he gave. Mount Sinai. Priestly covenant. Who remembers the priestly covenant? I know John does. Remember the priestly covenant? I won't ask you to, to read it, but God narrowed down the priestly line to one man, Phineas, because he had put a stop to the sin in Israel's camp. God was wiping out 
all of Israelites because of sexual immorality. He's, remember, he's the guy who took the, the pole and ran it through those two and the tent. God said he would bless his line. And eventually, it was only his line of priests. But he said that there would be a priest from his line forever. It was an everlasting covenant. And the second generation, again, they're reminded in Deuteronomy, right before they're about to go into the land, all the first generations died off. And Moses reminds them of the Abrahamic covenant. He reminds them of the Mosaic covenant. And then he even points to another covenant. We would call it the new covenant. We would call it the new covenant. He points to that at the end of Deuteronomy. So covenants are important in the old. We'll be pointing those out as we go through the books of the Old Testament. <laughs> Let me give you a brief introduction to those first five books because we're jumping into Genesis next week. might take us two weeks in Genesis. It's a big book. Big book. The first five books, what we call sometimes the Law or the Pentateuch, technically it's called the Torah. The Torah, it's Hebrew for teaching. The teaching, the teaching really of Moses because Moses wrote it. Teaching, direction, instruction, law. The Pentateuch is a Greek word. It means five. Five tukos, five volumes. It's a five-volume book. The foundation. You can't understand Isaiah or the prophets unless you understand what God called them to in those first five books. It's also just called different things in the Bible. What does the Bible call those first five books? The law, the book of the law, the book of the law of Moses, the book of Moses. Why, why is it the book of Moses and the law of Moses? Because he wrote it. All these liberals debate that Moses didn't write it and the Bible itself says it's the book of Moses. Jesus says it's the book of Moses. The law of the Lord, the law of God, the book of the law of God, the book of the law of the Lord. So what's a common word you're seeing there? Law. Why? Because there's a lot of law there. It's not all law. There's a lot of gospel in there too. But the majority of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is law. So that's what it's referred to. And it taught Israel how to live a holy life before God. Now that they say they're saved, we'll do whatever you say, Lord. He gives them the law to follow. How important are these first five books? Vital. Let's just look at one passage on this. Deuteronomy 31. So at the very end of the Pentateuch, the very end of the Torah. It's not saying you can't, I'm not saying you can't understand some parts of Isaiah, some parts of Daniel, some parts of Jeremiah. If you really want to know what those prophets are saying, you have to realize what God said to them in the beginning of the nation. Because what are the prophets doing? They're calling people back to God. Turn away from your sin. Go back to God. 31, starting in verse 9. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. So all the leaders need this, this, these books. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law, specifically the book of Deuteronomy in front of all Israel in the hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and children and the alien who is in your town so that you may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land 
which you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. They're supposed to read it out loud every seven years. How blessed are we? We can read it every day. So expensive to copy scripture, so expensive and hard to do it. And it's at that point, just one copy. They're putting it in the ark. It's going to be a long time before there are multiple copies. Once a year, once every seven years, we're going to get out and read it to teach, to teach. The first five books of the Bible also point to Christ. We've already looked at those verses. He starts out by saying, in the law, or in Moses. What are some major themes in the first five books of the Bible? That's just all law, right? No, there's a lot there. Who's God? What covenants does he give? What is sin? What is election? Election established very early in the Bible. Exodus, what's, what's happening as they leave? Why are they leaving Egypt, the Exodus? The law, of course, is there. The tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? What, what, what's the temple going to be about later? We go back to the tabernacle to see that. Who are the priests? Why do they need priests? Why do they need sacrifices? What's this land promise about? How much land has God given them? Why is he putting them there? Who is Adam? Is that important to Christians today? Who is Adam? Is he a real person? Or is he just uh, a myth? Or is that poetry? Who is Noah? Did the flood really happen? What was the significance of the flood? What are we supposed to learn from the flood? Did it just flood the little valley that Noah lived in? Did it just flood the Near East? Did it flood the whole world? Who is Abraham? Why is he important? Why does Paul cite Abraham? Why does Jesus cite Abraham? Why do all the Jews look back to Abraham? What about Jacob, who's also called Israel? What about Moses, who wrote all these five books? Moses is a key figure. He's so important to Israel by the time of Jesus' day that they're almost looking to Moses as a Savior instead of the Messiah. So what's the purpose? Why did God put this in our Bibles, these first five books? The different ways to understand this. Everybody has their own views. I think this is the best. The kingdom understanding. God chose Israel as the seed of Abraham to be the priestly nation that would restore mankind to its proper role as rulers for God over his created earth. So it's looking at the kingdom. Adam was given all things on the earth to rule over. He failed. Everybody failed after that. God destroyed the whole earth with the flood. Then Noah came and immediately their sin again. And people are failing to rule over the earth according to God's law, according to God's holiness. So God acts. Of course, it's all in his plan. He acts. He chooses Abraham. He establishes the nation Israel. And I just want to close by reading Exodus 19.4. It's not hard for us to determine what the purpose of Israel was because it tells us in Exodus 19.4-6. through 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he's saying, remember, I saved you, I rescued you. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. What's, what's their purpose? What's Israel's purpose? To be a kingdom, a holy kingdom, made up of priests that can tell everybody who the true God is and show them the way, which will eventually point to Christ. Did they do that? 
They didn't do that. They failed at that. That was God's plan, of course. There's a king that later will come in the Bible, Jesus, and he'll later return to the earth and establish the kingdom the way it should be. But that was the purpose. And so that really is the purpose of the first five books is to tell us what happened from the moment of creation all the way up through uh, the point where they're going into the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy. So we'll start with Genesis next week. If you have a chance, read through those. Even just skim through Genesis. Look at the headings in your Bible. Kind of wrap your mind around what's going on there. Lord, I'm thankful for the Old Testament. Let us know this book better. Two-thirds of our Bible. You've inspired every word, every jot, every tittle. It will not pass away. And so I pray that we would know it better, that we could quote from it, that we could know the theology taught there. Help us as New Testament Christians to know the Old Testament. We pray that you would do this in the name of our Lord. Amen.